We're going to read from 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 10, which is on page 813 in your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 10. Let's pray first. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your word and the privilege of opening it together. We pray that your words may come through uh, through Kyle and the work that he's done this week to understand this text and to speak your truth to us today. Bless the preaching of the word and the hearing of it and the doing of it as we leave this building today. In your name, amen. 2 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. I am reading the wrong passage, aren't I? It's such a good passage. <laughs> Do I have a wedding shower on my brain? Second Corinthians. <laughs> I really wanted to read that passage. Okay, let's try again. <laughs> Final warnings, folks. <laughs> we move on from the love passage to Second Corinthians. 13 verses 1 through 10, which is on page 822 in your pew Bibles. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony or of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned early or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jen. Good morning, everybody. You know, Jen, I think that's hilarious. I, I'm actually going to be trying something new today, and I hope that... Um, yeah, I hope that I do not blunder. I have usually had a lot more 
notes in front of me that I'm going to plan to have this morning. And so we're going to be on a journey together in terms of preaching from an outline alone. Okay, okay, we're on this journey. Um, And I hope that when we're done with it, that you have more of a 1 Corinthians 13 attitude than a 2 Corinthians (laughs) 13 attitude. This is the final warning, Kyle. You may not do that again. Well, you know, this is an important topic, right? Real community. Um, I remember, and I want you to remember with me, our congregational meeting last summer. We're on the cook's porch, and there are two primary challenges that we were talking about. One of those was that we're feeling tired. It's just been a long couple years. We're tired. The other was that we're feeling disconnected. You know, coming out of COVID, we were like, can we go to back to pre-COVID times, socially, as a community? Um, and that's a really hard thing to do. Um, so if these challenges are real rather than just imagined, I imagine when you see a title like real community, right, the power of real community, your ears perk up. And you have a vested interest in the topic, a vested interest in real community. So I wonder if, I want you to imagine, what does your community look like right now? Just, just think about it. Think about the real day-to-day life and who's part of your community and what it looks like. And I wonder if it's changed. Does your community look different than it looked a couple of years ago? Do your habits, social life, does it look different? You know, some of us have returned to some pre-COVID norms. Um, And that's not to say that pre-COVID norms were good and healthy through and through. Others of us, even today, are feeling more disconnected than ever. Now, it might be convenient to blame this all on COVID. We socially distanced ourselves for COVID. But I wonder, if we look at our times throughout world history, and we think about where we are in that timeline, the digital age has already fostered a sense of, quote unquote, being alone together. Almost like we signed up to go to a silent rave, and we all brought our own playlists, and we're dancing to different music, you know, one of, uh, this, is, this is an interesting phenomenon I learned about as a result of uh, research for this, um, for this sermon. Did you know that more now than ever, it's a, a social norm to go to concerts, um, both classical and, and kind of big concerts, late and leave early? Um, it's, it's an interesting thing what happens when we live in a culture where we download hit songs rather than <laughs> full albums, and where we listen in headphones rather than through speakers together. Um, why is it, except that our cultural habits have um, changed us and our music event attending habits to something more individualistic? It, it's an interesting thing. I mean, it's not just the digital age. In the past 100 years, We are more migratory as a society than ever. 
I mean, there are a lot of seminary students that did not grow up in Massachusetts that are sitting in the pews. Um, I mean, neither my family nor Lissy's family uh, live in close proximity to one another. Um, it takes real intentionality to create a neighborhood um, at Christmas time. Beyond that, I think that in New England, we live in a cold climate culture. Um, and what that can do is it, it can foster a sense of decision-making that's, that's more individualistic than, than for the community, for the good of the individual than for the community. And if I'll, I'll say that in other terms. I'd say that if there's a scope to our camera in terms of our moral imagination, it's zoomed in on portrait mode rather than a wide-angle lens capturing all of us. And we found ways to cope with this, which is not to say we have found good and healthy ways to cope with it. I mean, social media is one of them. Uh, binging on Netflix is another. It's a way to fill the social void. I mean, one of the things that I was interested in in my dissertation was, was why, why, we, um, why we watch people like Jimmy Fallon and, and feel like we know them and I feel like we like them, and feel like they might know us as well. Um, and I, I looked through it with attachment theory to, to understand why things like that happen in media communication. Um, social media, um, it, it does a way to, to whet our appetite for personal connections, but it also shortens, um, or, or it, it distorts time and space. Right? You can go through your feed, and there's no difference between yesterday, last week, or years ago, sometimes, experientially. Um, and there are people that live very far away that are just right in front of you, an image of that person right in front of you. Now, I can't promise to offer a solution to all of these things. Um, but I think that Paul sets us on the right path in this, in this passage. Uh, with, a, with a vision that assumes real community. Um, Paul shows us that real community has at least three marks. Right? The first mark of real community is truth and love, and there's a balance between them. Right? One isn't sacrificed for the sake of community. They're held together. The second is identified by self-giving weakness. And that's been a drumbeat theme of our service and our, our series is that actually it's through weakness that we experience God's power. The last, and this is especially in the case of the church, right, is that real community has its strength when Christ is the one that unites us rather than some cause, some shared interest. When Christ is the one that unites us, we experience real community, as, as, uh, as Paul uh, talks about here. So now, the first point. What does it mean to be a real community? Being a real community means we're balancing both love and truth. And I want you to think about that. First, I'm going to talk about love. And, and actually, go to the passage with me and read this in verse 8. For we, Paul is speaking here, cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. So what truth is Paul talking about? Paul, in this whole passage, is talking about a case of, of would-be church discipline, or at least the structure of church authority. 
um, and in cases where there has been discipline in the past. And he's measuring that up against a standard of truth, of God's truth. Now, in verse 2, he says this, I already gave you a warning when I was there with you the second time. I now repeat it to, uh, while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Now, I, I want you to think about what Paul is saying. So he says, I'm not going to spare anybody. And remember, this is Paul talking. Um, I mean, Paul, what does it mean for Paul not to spare somebody? I could tell you what it probably meant 20 years ago for Paul when he was sitting on the Sanhedrin and when he was persecuting Christians, it probably meant that he would stone somebody, like he stoned Stephen in Acts chapter 7. I mean, is that the standard against which uh, Paul is measuring? Is this a life or death sort of thing? And, and is that the case in the church? Is the church a body that, that acts like that? And I don't, I don't think it is. I think that actually we get a, a hint of this in verse, verses 9 and 10. We're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. That's why I write these things to you when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in the use of my authority. Now, Paul has envisioned here restoration, building up of the church. He doesn't have in mind somebody's death, somebody's stoning. Um, but in a very real sense, when the church does exercise authority, um, it's, it's summed up in the words of Miroslav Volf's book title, I think, of exclusion and embrace, right? There's, there's this sense that we, if, if we behave as a church and, and exclude someone from communion, we're saying um, that you are not sitting at the Lord's table, that we, we don't think that's safe for you. We don't think that you're right with God. We think that actually you need to repent to be safe at this table. We're going to exclude you until that happens. And embrace is, is the image of actually being restored back to the feast, that table of God. Um, now, truth and love, right? True truth and love. Those are the two things that are held in tension. And I, I want you to compare our approach in the church from maybe what we see in our wider society or even what we can sometimes see in evangelical culture, which is that sometimes those can be laid at the altar of the other, which is to say that truth can be weaponized, and love can be weaponized. Um, weaponizing truth, and this is the word that I heard recently um, when I was reading somebody's, um, somebody's reflections on the testimony and witness of Tim Keller, who just passed away. They talked about it as our political moment requires that we... Um, operate in truth, but, but perhaps that is at the expense of love. And I, I think that in especially the New England culture, we often see the opposite, which is, which is truth laid at the altar of love. And, and in that sense, what, we're, what we see right, is people saying that there is no multicultural truth that relates to everybody, every religion, every, every, everybody. I, I think that there's a sense in which it's really unique in the church that those two things come together. Um, true power um, or, or true community has both truth and love. Um, and radical love. 
And I'm gonna transition with this idea that, I mean, the, the image we have of that radical love is a gentle God who takes the place of the sinner in, in, on the cross. So that, that's the image that we have of truth and love coming together, which informs what we see in our community of weakness. Now, so, so if the first point is that we are to be a community where both love and truth come together, we're also to be a community of weakness, and therefore that is true strength. Now, I want you to read this with me in verse 4. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him. I'll say that again. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. There's three images, right? So existing in weakness, existing with God, and existing to serve others. Those are the three pictures we have here. And, and actually, there's a, a portrait of gladness in verse 9. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. Now, as a community of weakness, I want you to imagine what that looks like. I, one, one phrase that I want you to remember is um, humble stewardship. Weakness in community looks like humble stewardship. Um, I mean, Paul uses the entire letter of 2 Corinthians to paint this picture of weakness within church life. And it includes both those things, humility and stewardship. I mean, when we think of humility, I think sometimes we can get off track because Thomas Aquinas wanted us to think about uh, humility as a quality of the heart, an inner characteristic. Biblically, we get a different image, and biblically, I think it's actually a little bit more literal. And we think of humbleness as near to the ground, right, in English, and, and an inner quality. I think that that near to the ground aspect is, is really true to the biblical uh, idea of humility, right? So we have people in, in Scripture that were literally humbled. I mean, think of Joseph, was literally thrown into a pit. And then imagine someone in that space, and what does it, it look like for them to operate in that space except to associate with the lowly, right? Humility associates with the lowly. Um, Jesus is another example of humility in that he was divine and took on flesh and joined with creation. There's this sense of, of downward mobility, which I think is really part of our, the way we imagine what humility looks like in Scripture is not simply an attitude of the heart. It is an action of, of literally associating with the lowly in society. So humility, that's the picture we have. And, a, and, and one quintessential essence of what it means to be a, a community that exists in weakness. It means to be humble, to... to, to, to associate with the weak, the, the lowly. The other is stewardship. Now, stewardship, I think I want to break this actually down into two components. One is a spiritual component, and the other is a social component. Now, in terms of spiritual, um, I, I mean, how can you steward what we've been called to steward when we, are, when we draw together in worship it's actually an, an amazing thing that is that sometimes we don't think about closely enough. There's, there's a quote by Annie Dillard that I want to read you, and I'm going to read it slowly. Um, 
On the whole, I do not find Christians, outside of the catacombs, sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness for ladies to wear straw hats and velvet hats. The church should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. What does it mean to, to have spiritual stewardship over a worship of such uh, an amazing otherness? Um, that's the first image. And sociologically, I want you to think about it as well, right? Churches broker power, and each of you brokers power as well. Um, our choice is how we use that power, how we steward that power. Are we going to steward it up or down, in strength or weakness, to self-promote or to lift others up? I think we have to bring those two concepts together, humble stewardship, because they are both part of what it means to be a community of weakness. Um, now, to transition us to our last point, I have a Tim Keller quote. Um, and we're all thinking about Tim Keller this week, I think. Um, Christianity is not just for the strong. It's for everyone, especially people who admit that. Where it really counts, they're weak. It's for people who have the particular kind of strength to admit that their flaws are not superficial, their heart is deeply disordered, and that they're incapable of rectifying themselves. It's for those who can see that they need a savior, that they need Jesus Christ dying on the cross to put them right with God. Another way of saying this is, I mean, to be a community of weakness, we have to first realize we had a, a rock in our hand and we were ready to throw it at that woman caught in adultery, only to realize and be humbled, recognizing that that should have been us. And Christ took our place. So we're called to be a community that balances truth and love. We're called to be a community of weakness. And that is our true strength. And another way to talk about our true strength is talking about the unity that only comes by having Christ at our center. Now, this past summer, we considered and acknowledged both the fatigue, the tiredness, and the disconnection. Maybe we're still feeling that way. Um, so what are we supposed to do with that? You know, one of the ways that this passage ends, and it goes on to final greetings, he says, I write these things when I'm absent so that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters will say, goodbye, aim for perfection, listen to my appeal, be of one mind, live in peace. Now, I think we have to acknowledge that our relational map has been um, kind of 
uh, we used the word of TNT earlier, right? Our relational map has exploded. <laughs> um, and things that were already a problem are not just at the surface, they've not just come to our awareness, but they've actually deepened in some ways. I mean, one of those is, is the, the way that social media, I, I mentioned this, it compresses time and it compresses space. Um, one of the things that the, theologians, when you, when you look in the deep theology books, they'll talk about is the difference between true presence and an image of something, right? True presence is what this feels like. An image is unfortunately what those over Zoom have to experience right now. Um, they, don't, they don't get the 3D, the real full quality of being face to face with a person. Um, and I think we have to admit that, I mean, Zoom is, is, is just a further extension of what phones did, which is great, um, but it also, it also, if that becomes the essence of our community, I mean, how flat is that? Um, a metaphor that I think is really apt is the Bible and what, what God did, and what we need, right? So, so if social media um, is good, physical presence is better, I think um, the words in Scripture are in some ways an image of God, right? They're in some ways, this is how God has connected to us, which is not, it's mediated through pages and letters and language, and there's some separation there. But think about how God gave us more than that in the person of Jesus. How, how in a sense, when the deep theologians reflect on perichoresis and, and the, the triune God in, in a, a dance, the inner dance of the Trinity and what we're invited into. There's a, a depth of presence there that goes beyond, I mean, just, just reading, right? There's, there's a real communing, a real experience, which in the person of Christ, we've been given. And so what that means for us is that we need more than Zoom and social media and phone calls. We need to be face to face with one another in accountable relationships, deep relationships with people where we are now, in our location, in, in our time. Another thing that is just practical is we need shared experiences again, <laughs> right? A community grows out of um, shared experiences. And, and I, I want to I want to make another distinction. Um, Lissy warned me that I'm getting a little abstract in some of this, so I apologize in advance, but I, <laughs> I want to make another distinction between um, when community draws together around a common interest or a cause, right? Sociologists will talk about that as a weak community bond. But when communities draw together over common objects or deep beliefs um, powerful experiences. You think of veterans who went to war together. There, there's something there that is forged so much deeper than soccer practice, which is great. I love soccer practice, but it, it's something so much deeper. Think about what we're doing here right now. Think about, I mean, the object of our worship, which is God. Think about 
the experience of recognizing that we need grace because, and we need radical grace because we're broken. And we come before God together with our hearts wide open, not pretending to be good or perfect, not because of some shared interest or some cause, but because Christ unites us. I mean, that is the making of a strong community bond, which is not to say that there are not going to be challenges. Um, I, I think you get a hint of the challenges even at the end of this letter, which mirrors the beginning, right? So this, this idea in verse 11, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of peace, and in verse 14, it says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, those are two words that had powerful connotations in the first century. I mean, peace was written with the Jews in mind, and grace was written with the Greeks in mind. Did they always get along? I, I think that we have strong evidence that they didn't. I mean, Ephesians talks about that relationship as having a dividing wall of hostility. And in, in Galatians, I, Paul confronted Peter for sitting with the Jews. And why, why were there separate tables? I mean, maybe there were ongoing food laws at the time, but there, there, were, there was separation there, which is, to, which is a glimpse, right, of real community in action. It's not always going to be perfect, but it is Christ every time that is going to um, be our strength, be our unity, be the thing that um, keeps us from, from fracturing at the edges. And I think we also get... Um, I mean, an image in verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss, all the saints in their grief. I mean, I think you get a, a sense of the warmth and the joy that comes from finding our shared identity in Christ, having a strong group bond in real community with Christ at our core. Um, so I want to summarize, right? I want to summarize. Um, what, is, what are the marks of three, real community? There are at least three in this passage that Paul makes us aware of. Marks of real community for us. One is that truth is not sacrificed for the sake of love, and love is not sacrificed for the sake of truth, but those are held together. Sometimes we accommodate ourselves to things bigger than us that divorce truth from love, that weaponize each, and we can't bear those weapons as a community. The second thing is that it is a community of weakness rather than strength. And I, I didn't get into this so much, but I think in our day and age, it is so easy to hide behind public figures of power, right? There's an invisibility there. There's an anonymity there. It's so easy also to, to attack from, from the crowd. And there's something different about community than, than the group anonymity. Being embraced by a community of weakness <laughs> um, I mean, we put off all pretenses when we, when we come together because being actually known and being called up into the bride of Christ, which we are, means that we have to recognize that Christ is the one who unites us, and it is not for anything but grace that Christ has become our unifier. So if we heed Paul's words, there is no alternative to these three things if we're going to forge real community. These aren't the only markers of real community, but we can't 
we can't not have these three essential components. So this is our prayer, and I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to pray it. Our prayer is to be a people of truth and love. Our prayer is to be a people of weakness so that we can be strong and joyous, knowing that there's nothing but Christ crucified that unites us. And our prayer is to be sent out into the world with that confidence so we can proclaim Jesus crucified, died, risen, and coming again as the cornerstone of our community, of our real community that we're forging together. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this real community. I thank you that you have called us into vital, accountable friendships with one another where we can together worship you and confess our need for you. Um, I pray that you would make us humble, humble stewards of, of the many gifts and powers and privileges that you have put before us. And I pray that Christ would be glorified in every in everything we do, um, that he would not be um, taking a, a subordinate seat at the feast, um, but that in fact, we would see ourselves as joined around your table together. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.